chapter 12 as we continue our journey, our study through the parables of Jesus. We're calling it the, kings to the, the keys to the kingdom, and we're going to be uh, going here for a few more weeks as we look at this study. Luke chapter 12, we're looking at verses 13 to 21. The story is is told of a man who opens his newspaper one morning and he discovers the date on the newspaper is six months in advance of the time that he lives. He begins to read through the newspaper and he discovers stories and events uh, that haven't happened yet. He turns to the sports page and there are scores, basically, of games that have not been played yet. He turns to the financial page and he discovers uh, there the rise and fall of certain stocks and bonds and he realizes that He's going to be a very wealthy man with this kind of knowledge. A few large bets on an underdog team that will win uh, will make him rich. Investments in stocks that are now low but he knows will be high someday will fatten up his portfolio. He is delighted. Then he turns the page and comes to the obituary column and he sees his picture and his story and everything changes. The knowledge of his death totally changes his view about wealth and about life itself. A pastor was visiting a country church several years back, and he began his sermon with a stirring and sobering reminder about life after death. He said, every member of this church is someday going to die. Well, the pastor noticed a man in the front row that was smiling broadly and startled. The pastor asked him, why are you so amused? He says, well, I don't belong to this church. I'm just here visiting my sister for the weekend. As much as we might not want to admit it or think about it, someday we are all going to pass from this life into the next. The odds are still the same. One and one die. And yet somehow we think we're going to be the exception. You know, it is certainly true that at the end of our lives, we won't be wishing we had spent more time in the office. We won't be wishing that we had spent more time on the golf course. Most of us are going to regret that we didn't spend more time doing the things that have eternal value, especially relationships with family and friends. Well, Jesus touched on this very issue in this parable that we're looking at here this morning in Luke chapter 12. He was basically teaching his disciples here to fear God and to trust him for everything. And smack dab in the middle of his message there, a man suddenly in the crowd interrupts his teaching And he asks Jesus to settle a family feud. Take a look at verse 12, uh, or verse uh, 13 of chapter 12. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to him, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For even one who has abundance, even with one, when one has abundance, as his life consists of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself 
and is not rich toward God. Now this man that stood up in the, uh, in the crowd that day, we don't know exactly where he was coming from, but evidently his older brother uh, would not give him the one-third of the estate that was rightfully his. And so he's mad. He's bitter about it, so much so that he's not even listening to what Jesus is teaching there that particular day. His real problem, though, wasn't that he didn't have the money or didn't get the money. His real problem was that he had a spiritual disease called greed. His desire for money and material things had uh, basically strangled out and choked out uh, the life, uh, the seed of, of the word that Jesus wanted to plant in his heart and life. All he could think about was he didn't, have his money. Show me the money. And he expects Jesus to do something about it. Why? Well, that's, the, that's what Jesus wanted to know. Why are you asking me? A few years ago, Time Magazine ran a cover story asking, does God want you to be rich? And in researching that article, they surveyed about 800 uh, self-professed Christians across the nation and asked them to agree or disagree with the following statements. Number one, God wants people to be financially prosperous. 61%, nearly two-thirds of the people said yes. Material wealth is a sign of God's blessing. 73, almost three-fourths of the people agreed with that too. Poverty can be a blessing from God. About half the people agreed with that, half weren't so sure about that. Number four, Jesus was not rich, and we should follow his example. Again, about half agreed and half disagreed. If you give your money to God, he will bless you with more money. Most of the people did not agree with that. Christians in the U.S. don't do enough for the poor. About half agreed, half disagreed. And then finally, giving away 10% of your income is the minimum that God expects. 40% agreed. 60% said no. Now, there's obviously a wide range today of uh, opinion among Christians when it comes to the whole topic about money. To be honest, there are very few things in our lives that will push more emotional hot buttons than money. Why is that? Why did Jesus have more to say about money than about heaven and hell combined? In reality, uh, how you and I view money really does affect just about every other thing in our lives. Let's be honest. Money is often the, the, the measure as to how we value and, and what worth we give to people. Money is often how we view our own worth and value. And money is often the conflict of many relationships. In fact, uh, marriage counselors will tell you that the number one thing that couples come in to counsel about and argue and fight about is money. Number one. Number two is sex. Now, Jesus here in this passage could have settled this family feud with a lot of wisdom and with a lot of skill but he refuses to do so. He doesn't do it. Why? Because most people want Jesus to solve their problems and not change their hearts. Jesus knew that this family feud over money was really only a symptom of a far greater, deeper problem that this man had, and it was with greed. As the great physician, Jesus refuses to put a Band-Aid on a cancer. God deals with causes, not symptoms. And so this led him to teach this parable about the foolish farmer. It talks about covetousness. What is covetousness? Uh, covetousness basically is the disease of discontent, and we all have it, to some degree or another. It's a hunger and a desire for more and more and more stuff, more, more and more money. It's, it, it basically is a dissatisfaction with everything else. You're never really happy with what you have. You always want a little bit more. 
And that particular sin, the last of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, really basically leads to all other kinds of grievous sins in our hearts and lives. Eve coveted being like God, and so she, for, uh, she took uh, basically the forbidden fruit there in the garden. Lot's wife coveted Sodom, and she was killed on the spot. Achan coveted the spoils of war, and it destroyed him and his family and everything that he had. David coveted his neighbor's wife, and it plunged him, his family, and the entire nation into the pit of trouble and despair. Again, the last of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not covet. By coveting, we break all the other nine commandments. Now, the key to this parable is basically in verse 15. Jesus says, beware, be on your guard, look out, watch out, be aware. Guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You see, the covetous man or woman basically has bought into this lie that that basically the key or the, the, the key to success and happiness in life is having more stuff, more things, more money. But in this parable, Jesus warns that an abundance can actually make you a miserable failure. The younger brother thought that all of his troubles would be over if he just had the money that was rightfully his. Now, this doesn't all mean that, that, that God is not aware of our basic needs. He is. In verse 30, Jesus says, your father knows that you need these things. God is aware of our basic needs, and he promises to meet all of our needs. But what this does mean is that things in and of themselves can never bring success or happiness or joy. And so here in this parable, Jesus pictures a man who suddenly becomes very wealthy, rich overnight. For the first time in his life, he has a bumper crop. He has a ton of money and an abundance of stuff. Unfortunately, he responds to these blessings in the wrong way, and then he dies, and then his family fights over what he left behind. The whole point of this parable is for us to take a spiritual inventory of our own heart. How do we respond to the material blessings, the rich blessings that God gives to us? Do we see God, or do we see ourselves? When this farmer looked at his bumper crop and all that he had, all he could think about was himself and his pleasures. In fact, there are 11 personal pronouns here in this passage. This man not only had a heart disease, he had an eye disease. I meaning me. <laughs> he talks about my goods, my fruit, my barns, my soul. He's completely oblivious that everything he has came from God, and everything he, that he has belongs to God. Which is really the first application of our passage here this morning. Number one, first and foremost, we need to understand that God owns everything. And I'm just his money manager. Deuteronomy 8.18. It says, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to his fathers as, as it is this day. Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's, and all that it contains, the world and those who are in it, everything and everyone is God's property. Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So even you yourself are not your own. You're God's property. 
And so you and I have to have this steward mentality, basically when it comes to our money, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our stuff. We're stewards. I heard a few years ago, Bill Gates took nearly a half, a, half of his billions of dollars in assets and basically created his own money market account. With only one investor himself, his account was among Wall Street's top ten in the nation. And he basically had one accountant, one man who was in charge of his boss's money. As Christians, we're in the same position as that accountant. As Randy Alcorn uh, puts it, uh, a steward manages for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he manages. It is his job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets and then carry out his will. Once a distraught man rode his horse up to John, the great John Wesley back uh, in the 18th century, and he said, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. And John Wesley thought for a moment, he paused, and he said, no, that Lord's house has burned down. That's one less responsibility that I have. What a great perspective. What a bold affirmation of reality. It is all God's. It all belongs to him. Everything we have, everything we are, and I'm just his money manager. Now, the gravity of all this is the fact that someday we're held accountable for the way in which we use the resources that he's given to us. Romans 14.10 says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, so then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We're accountable for the time, the talents, and the treasures that God so richly gives each and every one of us. God owns it all, and I'm just his money manager. Now, as the owner or the boss of the company, God is very, very generous. The Bible tells us that he knows that we need things. He provides for us all things richly to enjoy. And he makes, this is interesting, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, riches don't just happen to good people. Far from it. The fact that this farmer had a rich harvest does not mean he was a better person. It simply proved that God was kind and, and gracious to him. Wealth is no measure of worth. Having a lot of money does not make a person worthy any more than a person who doesn't have any money makes them or he or her unworthy. In fact, someone put it this way, having more money doesn't make you a better person any more than having a lot of kids makes you a better a parent, <laughs> necessarily. What it does mean is that you have more responsibility as God's money manager. Here's the problem. For every 99 people that can handle poverty, only one in 100 can handle riches. No wonder Moses warned his people. He warned the people of Israel before they came to the promised land uh, just to be on the, uh, the lookout for the blessings that are going to come their way. Uh, he knew they could handle the battle. He knew they could handle the burdens, but he wasn't so sure they could handle the blessings. And so he warns them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. When we look at the blessings that God so richly gives us, do we think of God or do we think of ourselves? Is it an opportunity to inflate our own 
egos or are we uh, greatly humbled by the fact that God would give to us what he has given to us so abundantly and richly? This is what it means to be rich toward God. It means material blessings of life enrich us spiritually instead of robbing us of our faith and joy. We enjoy the blessings because they draw us closer to God, not away from him. Do we think of enjoyment or do we think of investment? The self-centered person immediately thinks of enjoyment. And uh, in verse 19, that's what the rich man tells himself. He says to himself, self, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up, go for the gusto, enjoy. All he's thinking about is his own pleasure. The spiritually minded person realizes that God has God's money manager. He asks the question, how can I use these gifts to help others and to glorify God? Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoyment. I think sometimes people think, oh, wait a minute, does that mean I can enjoy what God has given me? Absolutely. 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that God gives us all things richly to enjoy. But a selfish enjoyment that ignores God and ignores others is not a part of God's plan. Neither does he bless that. One of the tests of spiritual maturity is a desire to use what we have for the benefit of others. Which leads to a second application here in our parable. My heart always goes where I put God's money. <laughs> My heart always goes where I put God's money. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus states, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be, be also. God wants your heart. He doesn't need your money. But listen, when he has one, he has the other. If he has your heart, he has your money. If he has your money, <laughs> he has your heart. And so Jesus, in a real sense, is saying here, show me your checkbook, show me your visa card, show me your receipts, show me your statements, I'll tell you where your heart is. Money leads, heart follows. As Randy El Elkhorn puts it, God wants your heart. He isn't just looking for donors for his kingdom, those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy. He's looking for disciples, immersed in the causes they give to, he wants people so filled with a vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of not investing their money, time, and prayers where they will matter the most. So what was the biggest problem with this foolish farmer? He lived as if there was no tomorrow. He may have had a brilliant stock portfolio. He may have had a, a great medical plan. He might have had excellent retirement package. But he thought that every day was going to be like today. And that night, he died. It leads us to the third application from our passage here this morning. Heaven, not earth, is our home. Heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.20 states, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg on your behalf, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is an ambassador? You and I are called to be ambassadors. An ambassador is a foreigner living on foreign soil. We are foreigners living on foreign soil. Philippians 3.20 adds, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, where we choose to put our treasure really <laughs> tells us it depends largely on where you consider home. Where do you consider home? We're pilgrims. We're just passing through, and pilgrims travel light. Randy Al Alcorn points out that this planet really is a landfill. <laughs> he says it's a junkyard. It's a final resting place for all of our stuff. Think about it. He writes, sooner or later, everything we own ends up here. Christmas and birthday presents, cars, boats, and hot tubs, 
clothes, stereos, and barbecues, the treasures that children quarreled about, friendships that were lost over, honesty that was sacrificed for, and marriages broke up for, it all ended, ends up here. Somebody call it the ash pile principle. Why? Because it's all going to burn. It really is, all of it. Now, Bill Gates' ash pile might be a lot taller than mine or bigger than mine, but so what? It's an ash pile. That's the ash pile principle. I want you to think about what this foolish farmer could have done if he was a man of faith, a man of conviction, a man of dedication. Warren Wearsby in his book suggests that he might have called his family and friends together when he got that bumper crop and had a praise service. Praise God, look what God has blessed me with. Or he could have shared his wealth with those that are less fortunate. Or he might have distributed it to members of his family before they would all fight about it after he was dead. He might have invested that wealth in another way uh, for projects in his community or given it to his local church. We really have to think of life in terms of investment. Everything we have is an investment. That's what Jesus was talking about here in verse 33. Sell your possessions, he says. Give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Now, obviously Jesus is not telling us here to go out of business or get rid of everything. He's urging us to invest in eternal things. Basically, uh, that our wealth ought to be somewhere where it cannot be stolen, it cannot be destroyed. Jim Elliott, a missionary killed by the Indians that he was ministering to, said it perfectly. He said this, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. You're not a fool to give what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. It leads us to our fourth application of our passage here this morning. Don't live for the dot, but for the line. Randy Alcorn explains, he says that our lives have two phases. One's a dot, and the other's a line that extends out from that dot. Our present life on this earth is a dot. It has a beginning, it has an end, it's short. Basically, in terms of eternity, our life is like a dot. But from that dot extends a line that goes out forever. And that line is eternity, where the Christian will live in heaven forever. In fact, the Bible tells us that we were actually made to last forever. That God wants us to be with him forever in heaven. And so one day, um, my heart's going to stop. I might make it to 61 or 80 or 100, but one day, this body's going to die, but that will not be the end of me. In fact, I'm going to live trillions of trillions of years in eternity. One author put it this way, this life is the warm-up act. It's the dress rehearsal. In many ways, it's like boot camp. God wants us to practice on earth what we will be doing forever in eternity. And so we know that we were made by God, we were made for God, and unless we really understand that, this life doesn't make any sense at all. The short-sighted person lives for the dot today. This is it. The person with perspective lives for the line our giving, for example, is living for the line. Our service to the Lord is living for the line. Our time spent loving and serving others is living for that line. Meanwhile, this world is not our home. Again, we're pilgrims. We're just passing through. <laughs> and basically, pilgrims travel light, live simply. And so when it comes to money, do you experience anxiety or peace? Most people get agitated and worry. Most people believe that money and stuff will alleviate their anxiety and give them more peace. But in reality, Jesus says it's just the opposite. 
The more money and stuff we have, the more we worry. The more anxious we become. Henry Thoreau once put it this way, a man is rich in proportion to the number of things that he can afford to let go. He wrote in his journal, March 11th, 1856, that man is the richest whose pleasures are the cheapest. <laughs> Live simply. Cut back. King Solomon was a very rich man, and yet he had no peace at all. He was the richest man in the world at that time. In Ecclesiastes 5.12, he says, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. If money brings happiness, then the happiest people on earth ought to be the rich people, and yet they're often the most miserable. What's interesting is that this parable is followed up by Jesus with another sermon on worry. Interesting. The poor think that the rich never worry, and yet the rich worry about, th or, yeah, the rich worry about things that the poor could never dream of. But whether rich or poor, if we find ourselves worrying, it is a sure sign that we don't have the right perspective on material goods and money. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus put it this way very plainly to his disciples. He said, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor, nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief can come near nor moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is the cure for worry? <laughs> what is the cure? To stop living for things and start living for God. Luke chapter 12, verse 31. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things, all your basic needs, will be taken care of. They'll be added to you, Jesus said. You know, nothing simplifies life more than simply putting God first and getting your priorities straight. It leads to the final application of our passage here this morning. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Giving is the only antidote. It's the only cure. Why is that? Randy Alcorn puts it this way. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and it exalts him. Only giving defies that spirit of entitlement and breaks me free from the gravitational hold of money and possessions. Giving shifts me to a new center of gravity, heaven. You know, I'm absolutely convinced that if God prospers you and I, it's not so that we would raise our standard of living, it's that we might raise our standard of giving. Are we givers or are we takers? 
When God provides more money, we often think, hey, this is a blessing. I got this bonus. I got this new job. I got more funds. This is great. But it's also a test. It's a blessing, but it's also a test. When I hand a package to a FedEx man, it doesn't belong to him, right? He's just the middleman. His job is to get that package to the person that I intend to go, it to go to. We are God's errand boys. We are God's messenger girls. And yet he gives us the responsibilities to, to set our own salaries. Imagine that. We don't own the store. We just work here. So why is it that God gives some of his children more than they need and others not enough? I think it's because he can then use us as his children to basically help one another. 2 Corinthians 8.14 puts it this way. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. You know, I don't really think that God, that God wants us, for the most part, to have too little or too much. I look at uh, Proverbs 30. It tells the danger of both. The writer says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Or, lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Remember the story about the sailor long ago who was shipwrecked on one of those South Pacific islands full of natives. The story goes that he was seized by the natives, hoisted up to their shoulders, carried to the village, and set on a crude throne. Little by little, he learned that it was their custom once each year to make a man a king. King for a year. He liked it until he began to wonder what happened to all the former kings. Soon he discovered that every year when his kingship was ended, the king was banished to a distant barren island where he starved to death. Sailor didn't like that too much, but he was smart. And he was king, king for a year. And so he put his carpenters to work making boats, his farmers to work transplanting fruit trees to the island, farmers growing crops, masons building houses, so that when his kingship was over, he was banished, not to a barren island, but to an island of abundance. <laughs> That's a good parable of life. We're all kings here for a little while able to choose what we will do with the stuff, the resources that God has so abundantly given to us. We can't take it with us, but guess what? You can send it on ahead. It all boils down to where our heart is today. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Jesus clearly says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God wants us to enjoy the good gifts just like we want our children to enjoy the gifts that we give to them. But he does not want us to depend on things. He wants us to depend totally upon himself. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are sheep in God's flock. We are children in God's family. We are citizens in God's kingdom. Let's never forget that. We have nothing to fear. <laughs> the eye sees what the heart loves. I want to see Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want to make him my number one focus in this life because it will be forever in the next. So whatever material blessings I have will only draw me closer to him. And uh, what we have will not be our masters, but what we have, what God gives us, will be our servants for his glory. Let's pray together. Father.